0: One of the things you learn when you're in prison is that the prisoners are hungry for what's happening in the outside world, and they have TVs, and they could be watching the soap or something, but someone says it's five o'clock, bang, they turn to the news. Well, there I was. I immediately got up from where I was and went over to the prison guard that was nearby and said, there may be some trouble. Because if they edit it, say, oh, the prison guards are wonderful. I'm being treated. They're just wonderful. And left out the other part. But they opened up with, I feel safer in prison than I do in our courts. I kid you not, the building shook. Because everyone in that prison was watching.
1: Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. I'm Max Clow, Senior Director of Leadership Development and New Politics. On every episode of this podcast, I'll be sitting down with a servant leader, a military veteran or an alum of a civilian service program like AmeriCorps or Peace Corps. These are individuals who have served in the past and have chosen to step up and serve again through politics at this critical moment for our country. On this show, we don't talk about policies or current events. We focus on what we like to call the inner journey. Where did their commitment to service come from? How did their service experiences forge their character? And how are they right now living and leading with courage and integrity at this incredibly toxic and partisan moment in our politics? For this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Chris Shays, the former Republican congressman from Connecticut. Chris won his first election in 1975 at the age of 29 when he ran for a seat in the Connecticut state legislature. He served at the state level from 1975 through 1987 when he won a special election to represent Connecticut's fourth congressional district in Congress, and he served there for 21 years before losing his seat in 2008. Chris is also a returned Peace Corps volunteer who served two years in Fiji with his wife Betsy from 1968 to 1970. In our conversation, Congressman Shays shares some amazing stories from his time in Fiji and explains how his experience serving with the Peace Corps influenced his political career in some very surprising ways. He talks about what it was like to spend six days in jail as a state legislature after being charged with contempt for protesting judicial corruption, and about his night spent at the notorious Cabrini-Green housing project in Chicago while a member of Congress. Finally, he shares some thoughts on what he thinks of our politics today, 11 years after leaving office. Congressman Shays has some amazing stories to tell about his efforts to live and lead with courage, integrity, and commitment to service in politics, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm thrilled to welcome Congressman Shays to our show. Congressman Shays, thank you so much for joining us and being with our podcast today. Here's where I'd like to start. What's your earliest memory of learning the value of service?
0: I think in terms of learning the value of service was the debates that took place between uh, uh, Vice President Nixon and Senator Kennedy. And my parents had worked, my dad had worked for NBC, so we were one of the first to have an a, a, a TV and all our neighbors would come and watch. But then when there were the debates in 1960, my parents bought their second TV and it was one of those screens that filled the whole area. And um, uh, we listened to the debates. I had three older brothers. I have three older brothers. And by the time I was uh, in sixth grade, they had gone off to college and one who was in the Navy after college. And so I watched the debates with my parents. Now, my first recollection of politics was when uh, Eisenhower was running against Stevenson. And I remember going to the Republican headquarters and getting things that I could put on my bicycle and so on. Uh, but so public service, um, I think really, uh, I started thinking about it when I was in eighth grade during the debates between President uh, well, then-President Kennedy, but Senator Kennedy.
1: What struck you about the debate? What What did you take from that debate that uh, struck you about service?
0: Well, uh, in terms of service, that's when Kennedy talked about the Peace Corps. And I was, and my parents were uh, Nixon uh, supporters, uh, and we wanted Nixon to do well. Um, uh, but I was very interested in this concept that I could live overseas, learn a new language, be of service for two years. And so from that point on, I I wanted to be in the Peace Corps. And you have to remember in those days, you know, young people, when they went to college, they just went to college domestically. They didn't go overseas, they didn't travel. Uh, And the thought I could, you know, live somewhere else in another part of the world, in service to my country it was very exciting.
1: So even as a kid, you dreamed of doing the Peace Corps. I mean, years before you got a chance to go.
0: Uh, yeah, As soon as it was uh, it was discussed, and then when he became president, yeah, absolutely. But the, I'm kind of a strange kid because by the time I was in third grade, I knew that I wanted to work in government. I had a teacher named Mrs. Capella. I wish I had able to have contacted her before she left the earth. But she taught me the love of reading. I joined the Weekly Reader Book Club. Um, she had all these kids' versions of historic people, and I must have been hyperactive because sometimes she put me in the back of the room, and and with a whole stack of, of books, and I would read those books sometimes in class. And um, but it was about Davy Crockett, Danny Boone, uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington. Um, you name it, all those historic people. And I knew from that point on, I wanted to be in government. Now, I didn't want to be in politics, necessarily. I didn't want to run for office because I wasn't the most popular kid in the class. I mean, I, you know, I had lots of friends, but I wasn't the kid who was going to run for class president or for the president of student council. In fact, the only time I ever got to be in, in, uh, in the council was in ninth grade, when no one seemed to want it and said, well, I'll take it, I really wanted it. So um, I would have been afraid to lose, run and lose. By the time I became a senior, and, and so um, I'll just say that I just had a real affection for American history, and all my teachers knew that. And if I got, if I got a C plus in English, I got an A in history. And, uh, but they also knew that I loved politics. Uh, by that time, government, I'd say more than politics. You know, actually in those days, politics was more like government than politics is today. It's a very different thing. Um, so at any rate, um, by the time I was in senior, uh, I thought maybe I'd run for public office and by the time I was in college, I knew I would.
1: Interesting. And so y- you always had this interest in government and you chose to do the Peace Corps. Help me understand, did you see the Peace Corps as kind of a step towards some kind of public service? How did you see well, that as a step in well, your path?
0: I, I was a teacher, you know, and I was working. Uh, my wife and I both were in the Peace Corps together. Um, and, you know, when we got out of the Peace Corps, we each had $1,500 set aside, you know, the Peace Corps gave us. So we had a total of 3000 Now, when you're washing your underwear on the rocks and um, uh, you, you – and all your clothes. By the time you get home, you need a whole new set of clothes. So, zip. There goes the three thousand um, dollars. At any rate, um, uh, I also, when I was in the Peace Corps, ended up advising a uh, a ten thousand uh, female uh, cooperative on on you know special things that the chains made and sold uh, to tourists. I was in Fiji in the South Pacific with Betsy, and people kind of laughed at Well, well, what kind of service is that? <clears throat> well, we, the first place we went to was uh, the center of Viti Levu, and it was called of Levu, which meant lots of laughs. And the only way you got up was through a punt in a narrow creek, the boat might be 20, you know, feet long, but it was you could hold on your hand either side of the of, of the boat. So it was narrow. It was going upstream, and it would carry go and get bananas and bring them down and bring people back and forth. By the time we were halfway up the, to our destination, and it was only a day's trip, um, the children looked at my wife in absolute horror and would hide behind their mother's skirt in absolute shaken fear. Of my wife, who's absolutely very beautiful, and and very why? Wealthy. Why were they afraid? They'd never seen a white woman before, never ever seen. They'd seen a white man because certain Fiji you know, was a British colony. Probably had government officials that had come up, and there had been a Peace Corps volunteer ahead of who uh, was in the village that we ultimately went up to, um, and it was um, now uh, a week later. Uh, they could f- I think of this kind of funny story. When we got to Las Lago, there was a little puppy that came up, a young dog, and my wife got down her and he said, uh, Lakamai, which means come here in Virginia. The dog looked at her, did a 180 degree turn. The hair was up like you know, <laughs> way up high. And it was almost like a cartoon running down this path in a puff of smoke. And, and I, <laughs> now a week later though, uh, Betsy and I are sitting with these kids and they're sitting all around us and they're poking our skin. And, and you think, well, what's that all about? And they were fascinated that when they poked our skin, it changed color. Hmm. But my point was, you know, a week later, they were in her arms. Uh, so so good how, would, how would you
1: say the Peace Corps experience kind of forged your character? What did you learn from
0: that? You no, know, before I do that, I want to explain one thing. And, and, and that was I wanted to go on the Peace Corps, but I asked to go to South or Central America. You know why? Why? Could guess. guess. Any guess? I don't know. Okay. I wanted to learn Spanish. Because Spanish. If I, okay. If I learned Spanish, that would be helpful politically. And I had spent two years in college and in high school and didn't learn any, and two years in, in uh, college and didn't know how to speak any Spanish. And I thought, the Peace Corps could finally teach me to speak Spanish. And by the way, the way they teach the language after you're there for two weeks in the training camp, after two weeks, they say from six in the morning to nine at night, you can only speak the language. So in three weeks, I could speak Fijian. And I thought, why the hell, excuse me, but why the hell don't they teach that way in college and then even in high school? I mean, more intense, because there you learn it. So you asked me uh, a question that I didn't answer. It's all right. How
1: do you think it it forged your character? You know what what did you learn?
0: Oh, a, a lot of things. First off, it was a little scary uh, to go off and know you're not going to see your parents for two years. You're only going to be able to communicate with your your family and friends. Uh, well, we were ultimately out outer islands, so we didn't see a boat for six weeks, um, and um, and then you're 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 left with the thought, well, gosh, I'm spending two years while all my friends are have jobs and you know are moving along. And um, we were f- a- a first sent to a small island, and it it had five villages that had um, were part of the um, the school system, and unfortunately, three of the villages were got in a fight with the main village, so we only had two villages, and I was only teaching about 10 kids, and Betsy was only teaching about 10. So after three months, we said, you know, this is crazy. Uh, We need to be um, in a better place. Now, I mention that because it was a character issue. I had to basically tell the Peace Corps, Betsy and I would leave if they didn't transfer us. And, and I knew that would be a very unfortunate thing. Uh, and the reason they didn't want to transfer us was a political issue. Every every district in Fiji was to get a Peace Corps volunteer because it was something of a, a status symbol. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, so I'm here based on a status symbol. And at any rate, so they moved us. They moved us into a more urban area, and we were each teaching eighty kids. And uh, so, uh, one, of the, one of the skills we learned, I learned, to, oh, and, and so think of it, when we first went to Las Alejo, which was just for a week, um, you know, we're meeting all these people we don't know. We don't know how to speak Fijian very well. And, and, and they want us um, to entertain them. So they wanted us to dance for them. Dance? So to, oh yeah, we well, just do okay. something to entertain something. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, so Betsy and I are, are, are doing some kind of dance. Lord knows what it was. It would have been very embarrassing if any of my American friends could have seen it. And they had fun and they laughed. So, I mean, in other words, one of the skills you learned was just to let loose and go for it. Another skill uh, you learned was you're on your own, you know. Another skill is when you're in the Peace Corps, you're asked to do things that you wouldn't have been asked to do. And you just got out of college because they wouldn't give you those responsibilities. Now I was the youngest of four boys. And I'll just say parenthetically, when I came home, my parents weren't sure they liked me because I no longer wanted to be the baby in the family. And I didn't want to be treated like the baby. And you you were, I mean, it's just inevitable. You're the last, you got three older brothers that, you know, have taken care of you. But uh, so at any rate, uh, and when I got when we were in Missouri, which was in just outside of Suba, which has 80,000 people, I thought, this is really where we belong. And um, in an outer island, you're teaching, we were teaching them skills. And by the way, the way they did it was your school system was isolated from the village. And once you were in the isolated area of the school system, you could only speak English. So, so much for my Fijian, we didn't learn much Fijian. But uh, in in Missouri, in we had to actually build the classroom before we had the 80 students. And picture 80 students, they three in a desk that's a little wider than three feet or four feet. Um, and um, I, so someone, I, I realized what I was doing was, I wasn't teaching these kids, um, to be Americans or to be uh, to be Westerners, I was teaching kids to survive in an urban area, where they would have to learn some Western skills uh, in order to get jobs. Uh, they couldn't just be in the outer village and go out and fish. Uh, they couldn't just you know go collect the coconut and the copra and bring it into the into the suva to. Into the port to be processed. Um, they had to learn, they had to learn skills. So in a way, yes, we were westernizing them, but not for the sake of westernizing, but for the sake of urbanizing them, of, of helping them. When you're in an Outer Island, I, I think what you were doing there was trying to identify, giving every student a chance to progress, and the students that were really sharp would then move on. The way the Fijian system worked. So many went from sixth grade to, to seventh. So many went, and so by so many, you know, maybe one fifth. And then one fifth of one fifth went from eighth to ninth. Mm-hmm. Uh and went to tenth, rather, and from tenth to twelfth, you know. Um, but at any rate, uh, and I will also say something else. When when I was in the story, I, uh, I found the teaching you know, interesting and helpful, but I wanted to do more. So I went to the Peace Corps and 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 the school system let me intensively do work from eight to 12. And then I went to the Song Song of Akumarama, which was this uh, co-op of 10,000. It was two beautiful buildings. Remember now we're in Suva, which was uh, a cruise ship destination from New Zealand and Australia. And so the Song Song of Akumarama had Two beautiful buildings in which they sold to Jane Handicraft. And what did I learn real quick? I learned that even though I had limited marketing skills, I had really helpful skills. So for instance, they had placemats they were selling for for you know a dollar fifty. I said, You need to sell them for five dollars. They weren't selling that much. All of a sudden they started to sell for a lot more. They had beautiful artwork on the wall that they were selling and for twenty dollars. I said, that needs to be two hundred. And then it would sell. And one of the things I just knew was that, you know, Westerners value things based on price. Then the Fijian women were concerned that they were, you know, asking a price that wasn't fair. I said, how long did it take to make this, mat? Well, you know, they made a number at the same time, but it took at least a week. Mm. How long to do that artwork? Oh, two months, you know, not every day. But um, I said, <laughs> it's sure worth that. Um, I'll tell you one thing where I almost got us in trouble now. The Song of Song of Maraca marama decided that they would join a South um, a, a, a South Pacific center that was being built in Suva, where you would have Tongans, and then you'd have the Vijians have a, 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 a store, uh, and there'd be like 10 different of these outlets. And they said they wanted me to manage it. And I thought that was really cool. And then I realized that maybe they didn't. So, oh, and I should say that the two people that were in charge was the wife, she was Andy Lala and Andy Lysa. Andy meant they were princesses. They were married one to the prime minister and the other was married to the head of minister affairs. And he was the chief Fijian priest of all of Fiji. And at any rate, I went to Andy Lala and I said, I don't want you to feel obligated, da, da 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 She blew up. How dare you, in essence, how dare you tell me, you know, Andy Lala, that I have any obligation to you. In other words, I'm a princess, and you are a mere employee. You may be white, but how dare you? And by the way, she was like probably 300 pounds. And... So then I went to a Fijian that i I really knew uh, well who was in, had gone to Oxford and so on, and I said, "You know, should I give her a gift?" Because I thought that's what you do. You go and apologize." And he said, "No, you apologize, then you give a gift." So I went on my knees to her when she was up there, and I just said, "How foolish of me to think that I would think that you would have any obligation." Well, she practically put her arm around and hugged me. Mm. But my big concern was that I was going to get the Peace Corps kicked out of Fiji by offending the prime minister's wife right. and the head of Fijian affairs. You know, you could have me talk about the
1: Peace yeah, Corps. Yeah, so many stories. So Sorry many
0: stories. But, but it answers the question. You grow up real quick. You learn real quick. You're on your own. You don't have your parents. Just get advice. Um, and you're, you're dealing with newness every day. Um, And I realized even more than ever that the Peace Corps was one of the best experiences of my life.
1: Now, were you, did you understand it at the time as a step on the path into politics? Or you wanted to to have this adventure?
0: I thought it was part of politics. It was service. Um, You know, let me candidly say to you that um, another alternative would have been uh, being in Vietnam. And um, uh, I always felt myself very uh, patriotic and, and have a military flair to it. But um, I-, I thought people were dying for no reason at all. Mm. So And when I got out of the Peace Corps, um, I basically determined that I would go to jail before I would go to, to uh, and apply to be a, a conscientious objector and I, I became one. Now, I thought that would hurt my political career, uh, but I felt uh, incredibly comfortable doing that.
1: Say more about that. I mean, this is what this podcast is about, is trying to illuminate how people in public service kind of live and lead with that kind of integrity. And so you say you felt very comfortable about that. Help us understand.
0: When well, I, the- I applied to be a conscientious objector. I needed two out of three votes locally to have it go national because uh, the national government and um, I told them I said that I would not go to Vietnam um, that I was a conscious objector I would be willing to serve in another capacity and go to Vietnam but um, uh, uh, but not not uh, um, to kill and, um, and I'm going to say ironically that's became an issue when I voted to go into Iraq the first time. So for transparency. That Were you conscious something. that
1: there might be some political consequence
0: to that? I, w- I was conscious that there would be political con- consequence. Um, and let me tell you, I admire, and I, I, I ask every soldier, Marine, you know, sailor, whoever, Air Force, person who was in Vietnam to tell me about their experiences and they, they had amazing experiences. Uh, But at any rate, um, yeah, no, I knew that that could be a very difficult thing politically. Um, And I I also knew that I had said that I would go to jail before I, uh, if they didn't grant it and the, the national board granted it. And then what happened by the time um, I, I, I was, you know, Ready to serve, my peace. Uh, my my board became very um, contrary to the war, and didn't didn't you know have people sign up.
1: And it was just clear to you that there was some inner integrity that you were not willing to sacrifice. This was.
0: Yeah, I mean, sometimes it. sometimes you know you wonder was it also selfish? Mm. You know, some people were in Vietnam and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And it was my generation.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so I, I will tell you, I went out of my way uh, in politics to honor those two, sir.
1: Mm.
0: And I made it very clear that I didn't. I understand. Now, so, I always, I always felt that the Peace Corps was service, right? But and and so I, I felt I met my sense of service there.
1: I understand. So now you're 29, and you make a run for the um, Connecticut legislature and you win. Tell us when, why'd you decide to enter the arena then?
0: Uh, Well, first off, everything I did from third grade on, I always had a focus of what my interest was, right? I'm unusual. So it's like, if you know you're in a room and the door is in one side of the room, you're not going to go out by going in the opposite direction. So I was constantly going through the door and, um, so uh, when I went to college, I was American history and political science. I uh, did work campaigning for Paul Finley. I did a, a survey in Suva and Springfield, Illinois, because I went to a small school called Principia College out in Illinois. Um, and uh, so I was constantly involved in that. When I got out of the Peace Corps, um, I thought life was Norman Walker rockwell and everybody would want me it took me three months to find the job uh and and that was really uh, a shock to me how long it took you know i came back in september and i started in january but what i did was i went to about 30 mayors and i wanted to be their administrative assistant i wanted to work in local government and the cool thing was the gentleman i ended up working with, larry hyman was the he hired me because he had even though he was in a small town he was a President of the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities, and many had extra work, working for all the mayors. So we ended up going and lobbying up in Hartford, uh, and and I was being exposed locally, and then getting a taste of the statewide issues. So um, I then went to graduate school because I always knew I wanted to. And in graduate school, I got an MBA. Everybody said, "Why don't you go into politics? Excuse me, if you're going into politics, why don't you become a lawyer?" And my conclusion was. Uh, if you only had one skill, maybe lawyer was it, but we had too many lawyers, and, and I got an MBA from NYU, but remember my public service issue, I then got, uh, I ended up taking some of the courses at the School of Public Administration for my MBA course, and ended up getting two degrees, MBA and MPA. Um, so I was working for a mayor, I then went back to school, and um, I was going for my doctorate, and I realized nobody wanted to run as a Republican in North Stanford, even though a Republican because of Watergate. Well, when Ford uh, became president, everybody's willing to forgive the Republicans. Um, but I was now the candidate uh, in the 147th district for state representative. And I remember working on my brochure with some wonderful mentors and We had this phrase in Roche, the new openness exemplified by President Ford. And then we got a call, turn on your TV. It was Sunday morning. Never forget it. Nixon had just pardoned. uh, Nixon had just been pardoned by Ford. Out went the new openness. And, excuse me, the shit at the fan. Um, I was now the candidate. People, I was going to be the candidate. No one wanted it when Watergate and Nixon was there. And then when Ford got it, things looked up. And then... When Ford pardoned, they were worse than before the Nixon. And, you know, I would go on door to door and some people would say, he may be a very nice young man, but I got to send you a party message. Um, I went from door to door and I had wonderful help. And my slogan was Christopher Shays is listening. Now, mm. that was a dangerous slogan because remember the tapes. Ford was taping every, And excuse me, he right. was taping. But what happened was, my mentor said, if you really are listening, it will ultimately have meaning. And um, then my opponent said, oh, he's listening, but what's he gonna do? And so then, just so you know, listening is a huge strength to being effective because you get motivated by hearing people and you know what they're thinking. And you not only know what they're thinking, you know why they're thinking and you know, the words to use that express their concerns. And so uh, at the end, we had one, Christopher uh, Chase is listening, you opened up, this is what you said, da-da-da-da-da, this is what I'll do, mm. this is what you said, this is what i do, this is what you said, this way. what. And there were some things that people didn't realize were of interest to people that, you know, um, I now I will say you know the first few days when I started was interesting. Oh the other thing is I would spend 20 minutes with someone and mentor my mentor my said, well if you do that you're only gonna, you're only going get to 40 homes or less. But there were some homes where no one was there. But the word got out that I was for real. And then I learned something by going door to door listening. Uh, when I first was going door to door, I someone in North Stanford answer and they were African-American, I made an assumption that they worked there, they didn't live there, and 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 I was always right. And then I thought, well, what happens if one of these folks actually lived there? So I always made the assumption they lived there and they would be embarrassed and say, well, let me get the person who lives there. Well, with kids, and by the way, as time went on, I campaigned seven times in North Stanford, 13, 14, uh, 13 years. Um, and by, by a certain period of time, there were a lot of African-Americans because of they worked for IBM and Xerox and there was a program to elevate them. But at any rate, I also learned something about young kids. When the young kid came, I would talk and then say, is your mom or dad, and they'd get And then I thought, wait a second, I represent them. They have as much right to tell me what. So I would start asking them questions and then ask for their parents. Or they would say, let me get mom or dad. And then I decided, that I would just talk to them. And, and I get angry, I was thinking about it. They say, well, don't you wanna to speak to my mom or dad? I said, no, I gotta to speak to you. Well- Amazing. During, during the week before the election, or a few weeks, I had people say, I will never forgive you. My kids said, if you lost the election, they'd never forgive me. <laughs> so they said, I ended up calling my neighbors. Now, another thing I did was, I stopped at every Democratic home. I stopped at every home of people who weren't even voters, or or, uh, excuse me, who were neither Republican, and people who weren't even voters. And uh, the reason I did that was they have neighbors and they'll talk to their neighbors. And also I'll learn from people who aren't voting. Why, you know, some might not have been citizens, some just didn't bother to vote. Just Do one you quick see thing. A, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just one quick thing. The first day I went out, I, I went to a home and I spent about forty minutes, almost my first call. And then they tried to talk me in in not running. And then they um, explained why they were. It's a seven day Adventist, so or, or it's another faith, um, where they don't believe that. You should participate in government. Only God is the is the government. So my very first or second call in that first street was spending 40 minutes with people who not only uh, didn't vote, they didn't think it was right to vote, and they tried to convince me not to be a candidate. That was my introduction.
1: (laughs) Amazing stories. Um, Did you see a connection between your experience in the Peace Corps and the way you campaigned and the way you governed? I mean, how do you think your service experience influenced your approach
0: to politics? It gave me tremendous confidence. Um, first off, I, I'm a, I'm a Christian scientist, and one of the things that we believe is that people are inherently good, not inherently bad. Mm. And um, so I would try to find the goodness in everyone. And I and I obviously enjoy people, but the Peace Corps. Opened me up in 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 a way that I can interact with anyone. I could be with the poorest of the poor and the wealthiest of the wealthy and feel comfortable. In fact, when I was a state representative, I one time went my wife and I went to a homeless shelter. We didn't tell the press at all, never did. But um, the, um, the 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 uh, homeless shelter called, and you know the press thought this was amazing. Why would I? at a homeless shelter and bring my wife and daughter. Well, my wife was perfectly comfortable. She was a police car volunteer. Where hadn't she lived? <laughs> and we you know, were thrilled to expose our daughter to this experience. And and that that morphed into when I was a state representative, I would go to homeless shelters and spend the night and never tell the press. And the press didn't know. And I would tell tell the shelter, if they told the press, I wouldn't come. Because I didn't want the press to think, and I would have, I would have a community meeting at a homeless shelter. Can I tell you one story about a homeless shelter?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So I'm in Stanford, and bedtime is ten o'clock or nine nine thirty. I thought, gosh, I, this is great, and we we don't wake up until seven or so. so I'm going to have a great sleep, and they put me in with recovering alcoholics or you know whomever. Uh, there was uh and I was in a top bunk bed and there were probably, probably eight bunk beds, So, you know, say say six bunk beds and, and, and therefore 12 people. Uh, and so I got in and there was just this dim little light and I started to fall asleep and I thought, this is, how do you beat this? And we had a little conversation. So one of them said, so what's George Bush like? <laughs> and, and so for the next half an hour, I am having the most intelligent conversation, not with all of them, but probably four of them, about politics. They knew more about politics than I did, more about government, because they read every day. They were homeless. And, you know, that was one of the things they did. And, um, and it was just a real good eye-opener of the stereotype. They knew more than most of my constituents about what was happening in government. Uh, a good le- and then the next day I met a gentleman who had had three stores. I knew the stores. They had gone a belly up and he was living in a homeless house. I mean, from three stores to living in a homeless house. Homeless. Shop. So, um, but I, I have to say, I think I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't had the Peace Corps.
1: experience. Yeah. And that, I think it's safe to say that is not standard politician uh, decision-making these days. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'd love,
0: I'd yeah. love to, to say another little sense of what guides me.
1: Yeah, please. Um,
0: a true story of a father telling his son about feeding the wolves. And he says to it, Cheyenne, Cheyenne, I think it was Cheyenne. And uh, he says, son, uh, there are two wolves within us. One wolf is good, kind, caring, thoughtful, intelligent, patient, all the good qualities, and the other wolf within us is evil, he's bad, he's um, mean, he lies, and you know, you get the gist, and he said, your life will depend on which wolf you feed. So um, I always tried to feed the good wolf Mm. uh, in myself and in others. Powerful.
1: So. During your time in the Connecticut legislature, part of what another story you have is you spent six days in jail on a Wait, contempt don't, don't charge.
0: Don't sh- shut me short. I, I spent more than six days.
1: More than six? Okay. Well, oh, uh, no,
0: maybe maybe seven.
1: Okay. All right, but it was a and a contempt charge because you were protesting judicial corruption. Oh yeah. This so is- tell us this story, um, and why you why you took that stand.
0: Well, first off, let me say to you. Anyone who says you can't get things done if you're in the minority just doesn't know what they're talking about. The politics is a candy store of opportunity to do things that are important, no matter what, uh, whether you're in the majority or minority. Um, And uh, it got started for me, gosh, we could go on for days. I I love thinking about the stories. A father lost his daughter who was 14 years old on her first baby, 15 years old or 14, when she was on her babysitting assignment, he never wanted her to babysit, and uh, she had an opportunity to babysit for this man um, and his two children. And uh, he was to meet her at a um, shopping center, a small shopping center. So he had second thoughts about this, as she did, and. She got in the car with him and she waved him away like, dad, don't, don't do this. Well, when she got to the house, he raped her. And she said, I'm gonna tell, I'm gonna tell, and he killed her. And Charlie Hoy was the, the dad. Well, he was being treated like he was the criminal, Charlie was. He wanted to know what was happening, what were they doing, so on. He had no rights no rights in the, in the eye of the prosecutor. And I contacted him and I was stunned to realize that victims had no rights. And so uh, I traced it to the fact that um, in our state legislature, everyone on the Judiciary Committee were lawyers and they had their profession. And if they were prosecutors, I former prosecutors, but in many were defense lawyers and they didn't want victims to have rights. And so at any rate, I teamed up with a group of people and I first got on the Judiciary Committee and I teamed up with a group of people. And Charlie by then was able to go to the court and, and you, you, you'd think, it happens all the time now, the victims are able to address the court. At one time, they were not allowed to address the court because it was thought that they were unduly influence facts are the facts, you know, and, you know, the emotion of a, of a victim or a, the victim's parent or something. So at any rate, we learned that, um, the probate judge who are elected people, uh, had taken over in Hartford and he was the most powerful political Democrat. Uh, you know, chairman, uh, at one time of the just very powerful statewide and locally. And, um, he uh, had taken over a estate of forty million dollars of Ethel Donahue. Ethel Donahue had been a female lawyer who had forty million dollars, and he took away the jurisdiction from the attorney who she had chosen way back, and he set up um, an attorney for her person and a pers- uh, and her estate, uh, to you know her her living conditions and her estate. And he then, uh, and he got another attorney involved. So three attorneys were involved in her estate. One rewrote her will so that they became the life uh, owners of the estate. In other words, there's a term, not being an attorney, I'm forgetting the term, but uh, they were in charge of her estate. And they were in charge of deciding what happens when she passed away and they would make a fortune. Well, anyway, they were found out. And the three attorneys were kicked off and the probate judge was removed and a new probate judge was put on from another district. And it was a big story. And then I thought, well, wait a second, these three attorneys and the probate judge are out practicing law. They tried to steal a $40 million estate. So I took a complaint against them, a grievance complaint. And then I learned that the grievance process was the joke. The only people on the grievance board were lawyers. And and so it took me uh, over a year for them to hear the case. And when I went to the probate judge, I mean, the grievance committee, there were the six probate, uh, the, the six uh, grievance uh, board members, the executive director for the grievance board, an attorney, and the three attorneys with their attorneys. And I'm there without, I'm not an attorney. Very intimidating. And they said, I just want you to know this, you're gonna get impeached for what you're doing. I mean, they went on and on and on. At any rate, they heard my arguments. A year later, they came up with the case. And we learned that on a Friday afternoon, he was gonna go before the court. When it, well, the way a system works now, if you're a doctor, the commission of doctors can take away your, and other people on the board, can take away your right to practice law. You have to go to the court to get your license back. The way it works for an attorney is the the grievance can only recommend; only the court can take away the license. So it's a totally different process. Mm. And the punishment was absurd. It was uh, these attorneys would never be allowed to to work in the federal government. They would be given a a um, a a certain punishment that would make them not qualify for any federal. And that was a pure joke. So at any rate, I notified the press. And by the way, it was on Friday afternoon, it was Friday morning. uh, And all the press showed up and the attorneys didn't show up. And then I found out that the attorneys for the attorneys were meeting with the administrative judge because they didn't like the attorney that was selected because he was too tough. I walked into the meeting and, I said, well, I want to address the court. Well, they all agreed I could address the court when it came back. The administrative judge said, I have no problem. Do you have any problem asking those three attorneys? No. Like, who gives a darn about whether this jerk can, can test Anyway, any rate, then again, we, we, we had to find out from the press or someone that they were going to hear the case. And the case was heard by a guy named Norris O'Neill um, who happened to be the campaign manager of the probate judge who um, I was bringing the complaint against. And he started to go on and then I stood up and he said, sir, sit down. I said, I was told to address the court. He said, I never told you you could address the court, you sit down. And I, I, I didn't sit down, I just stood up. So he said, I'm gonna hold you in contempt. By then, I'm tempted to say I didn't give an S if I had been kicked out of the legislature, I didn't care. I felt the system was so corrupt, so outraged. I'd worked three years on this thing. And um, so he sent me downstairs, locked me up. Then he sent they sent people to try to convince me to apologize. Um, but to the credit, the prosecutor, the state's attorney, who was Mr. Ethics, Mr. Clean, came to me and said, I admire what you've done. That almost brings me to tears because so at the end of the day, oh, in the middle of the day, the judge brought me back up and they started to cross-examine me. And I said, your honor, I came to testify, to make a statement. And um, they wouldn't let me make my statement. They just asked me. So I said, I'm here to just make a statement. So he sent me back down in contempt. Then he brought me back up at the end and said, I understand from your friends that you're a very fine person. And that if you have a night to think about this, um, that you'll apologize to the court the next day. And I said to him, and very respectfully I did, I said, sir, I would never apologize. I think this is, I, I said, sir, I will never apologize. I think was ha- something, you know, what's happened. <laughs> At any rate, I was then sent to to jail. The, 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 <laughs> the sheriff for Hartford had bought a brand new Buick and I'm going in this brand new Buick and he says on the way down, you wanna go get a pizza? And I said, I don't think that'd be very appropriate by getting a pizza. So at any rate, they it took me, I said, so I said, no. They took me to Bridgeport. And now I'm getting the experience of what it's like. I go in, and by the way, I'm in a suit with Penny loafers.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're a, a government, you're an elected official at this point. So moment. we
0: drive in, and a gate goes down, a gate goes down, because now we're in prison. I'm taken out, and then I'm put in a, a relatively small closet. Basically, it was long and narrow with about... 12 other uh, people and every one of them uh, looked, was in sneakers or shorts or something and I'm in this and what I learned was every one of them there was scared and the reason I could tell you that was and I was uh, the reason I could tell you that was the, the way they joked they were it was it, it was jokes that were you know said by people just scared maybe not everyone but almost everyone so they took me out later and they, deliced me. Oh, and, and the judge, one of the um, prisoners guards said to me, sir, we've been told that the judge wants you, uh, excuse the word, get fucked. Not literally, but you know, we he wants this to be such a terrible experience that you will not want to come back. You won't want to get out. And so, he said, you'd survive in prison by either being strong or smart. He said, I don't think you're strong, so you better be smart. And so then later on, and, and so everybody knew there who I was. I was a legislator. You know, they, they shackled you up and you were brought over into the old prison. Now, the old prison was overloaded and there were five cells and then an, another bigger cell area with beds along it so if there were five cells there were five people there and then there were five beds outside the cells and one bed was free with no mattress and i came in and by then i'm wearing khakis and you know the prisoners and they noticed that one of the prisoners has two mattresses i said i don't need the mattress i don't need the mattress i'm fine on the. and they yank the mattress out they don't tell the guy to get up he falls down and they put mattress and I'm thinking, well, not a good way to start. Um, but now the next day, you want me to keep going?
1: This is fascinating. Okay. The legislature in jail. It's a, uh, yes. Okay. How so the next day,
0: well, it gets more fascinating for me. Yeah. I, um, I start to interact with folks and, you know, having a decent conversation with my fellow prisoners and, uh, one of the, um, uh, one of the guards comes, to, uh, comes over me, and says the, um, the warden wants to apologize to you. He said, there's been such a national interest about your case that uh, he scheduled a press conference in his uh, conference room. I can't tell you what great news that was. I've been trying to get this story out and, you know, it had gotten out locally. And I thought, so I walk in and my, gray sweatshirt and my khakis and there are i'm not kidding 20 tv set set, uh, cameras or more places packed and i'm sitting in the middle of this conference table and they're all behind it i mean they're all on the other side and so i can remember two questions in particular um one of them was do you feel safe and i said i feel safer i said I said to them. Oh, of course, they said, "How are you being treated?" I said, "My fellow prisoners are treating me very well, and 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 so are the uh, the prison guards. I'm being treated very well by the prison guards." And they said, "Well, do you feel safe?" I said, "I feel safer in prison than I do in our courts." That was uh, that came from God, as far as I was concerned. I mean, uh, well. And then they asked other questions. Uh,
1: and I, I do have to ask, in the, in the midst of this, did you at any point think, I'm just going to apologize, I'm going to get myself out of this, or you were committed? No,
0: no, 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 I was totally committed. So, now, the Peace Corps helped me be aware of new experiences, right? You asked me, it goes back to that, I have to give, so, you know, uh, now, was I a little scared? Yeah, did I, but, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be killed, I knew... You know, there were things, the thing that made me the most angry was, first off, my wife wanted to know where I was, and I had to tell her that I was in, in jail in the courts. My wife only laughed at that. Then she called up all the, then she heard I was being taken to prison, so she called all the prisons to see. My husband there, I was allowed one call, and I called her that evening, and you know, one thing, this is a parenthetical, the one thing that was most difficult was explaining to our daughter that even good people sometimes go to prison. My daughter was, gosh, she was born in 79, and this was, was this 85 or so? Yeah, so she was pretty young.
1: Yeah. She was very young. Impression.
0: And at any rate, so now, one of the things you learn when you're in prison is the the prisoners are hungry for what's happening in the outside world, and they have TVs. And they could be watching a soap or something, but someone says it's five o'clock, bang, they turn to the news. Well, there I was. I immediately got up from where I was and went over to the prison guard that was nearby and said, there may be some trouble. Because if they edit it, say, oh, the prison guards are wonderful, I'm being treated, they're just wonderful, and left out the other party. But they opened up with, I feel safer in prison than I do in our courts. I kid you not, the building shook. Because everyone in that prison was watching. Yeah. The building, and remember, these were the these were where you had the. Um, and this was the old prison, so it was very open, and you could you know the level below and the level below that. So it was stacked. You could, I could have led a prison riot. I could have done. Now the the problem was that when I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner now with others, everyone came up and wanted to tell me why they were innocent. And so on. Uh, at any rate, uh, I agreed to. Uh, the legislature was really unhappy because technically a member of Congress of legislature is not supposed to be arrested while you're in session because they didn't want the governor to, you know, or the king or whatever. So, um, I agreed to leave the prison after three days or four days, three days, as long as I came back as soon as the session over. As soon as the session over, arrest me, put me back. And, um, I'll tell you a little irony. I was the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee, and I was chairman of the Judiciary Subcommittee. There was an honor that used to happen that the minority—I was—that—that uh, that, um, you could be. Um, the bottom line is, you could be a, a, a chairman of a subcommittee, even though you were in the minority, for the ranking member of the Appropriations Committee. So, um, and I had been taken off that by my. By my um, majority leader, who a minority leader, he he removed me because whatever, and then he was forced to put me back on. Um, so I then I went to prison. Afterwards, now the thing I need to tell you is they put me in a different, they put me in a newer prison. If they put me in the newer prison, I might have been tempted to apologize because uh, because. Um, it, there was nothing open about it. It was all concrete blocks. My cell was, I had a little window like this. out of, The back was meshed, so dirty mesh that you had no, light. Like, I had a wonderful uh, fellow prisoner who was in the bunk below me. And I asked him, why did he get in prison? He said, well, I got in an argument with someone in a bar and I went to my trunk and brought out my sawed off shotgun. And I said, why the hell did you have a shot, thought-out shotgun in your car? I mean, give, you, know, you know, that has only one purpose. <laughs> At any rate, um, but I was, I, my bunk bed was so high up that if I sat up, my head would hit the ceiling. I, got, I was claustrophobic. It was incredible. And then when we were out, and we were only out for a little bit, the table was metal, the floor was aluminum, everything was stone, the noise was just horrible. Mm-hmm. No like uh, it was just, uh, it was a horrible uh, setting. Good for me to know. There, it was the most dehumanizing. Better to be in the old one than the new one. dehumanizing. I, it triggers something about experience. Can I tell you experience later on that? Yes. So, so it, what it triggers is, it's important for elected officials to experience. Sure. So, you know, I flew on helicopters late at night with uh, where three helicopters are together just to understand what it's like for our soldiers in these helicopters with no air conditioning and, and the danger. But one of the things I you, you might find interesting, I, I had a public hearing about housing at Caprini Green in Chicago. Caprini Green was, I think, 10,000 people live there. Yeah. Half Puerto Rican, you know, well, let's just say half from South America, Puerto Rico, etc., and the other half black and very few whites. And we were gonna have a hearing about this. And one of my staff's brothers worked in Chicago and was working at Caprini Green. And so I, we decided that I would stay at Caprini Green. And it was gonna be arranged that I would stay in someone's home uh, apartment and it turned out that it was a, a welfare mom who uh, decided it wouldn't be a good idea for me to be there. Um, so they linked me up with one of the gang leaders. And the gang leader had three girlfriends and I could go in any of those three and she would go somewhere else and he and I would stay there. And there was this guy called Father Bill who was not a priest, but he would wear the sequin uh pre and he would, when the Blacks and the Puerto Ricans were, fight, and South Americans were fighting each other, Latino community, he would go in the middle of the battle and they, both sides would yell at him, you know, get out of the way, you're going to get hurt. But literally they were gunfight. And so he was the person who had arranged this for me. And I said, to him, are you sure it makes sense for me to be with this gang leader? I said, it seems a little crazy. He said, well, it's no more crazy than what I do. Which was his answer. But anyway, I, I I did it. Now this is the reason I want to say the experience. It was in a concrete building, concrete blocks, and um uh some the homes you go into people keep them really nice. This wasn't kept really nice. I mean that's one of the things you learn is that just because they live in a in a place that's not nice outside doesn't mean it's not nice inside. Yeah. Um but it it was probably over a hundred degrees in there. It answered the question that I had always been critical of. Why do moms take their young children at twelve at night outside these you know these housing projects? How how you know now how, you know how stupid is it? and I knew then I knew. I mean it was painful to be there. So any rate, we go and we start walking around with the gang leader and another one. And I'm in a white shirt and khaki pants and one of them walks behind me and I'm feeling a little uneasy about it. And I say, how come you're walking behind me? And he said, well, you look like you're an FBI agent and I don't want them to think, literally, it looked like I was FBI. My gang leader takes me to one of the places he lives and he shows me all the artwork he did in prison. He had a newsletter for Caprini Green and then the two of them performed um, a song for me. Uh, you know, it was just this weird experience. So then about three in the morning, we get back, I have a hearing the next day. And I'm trying to get some sleep and, and he's uh, smoking pot and says, you, wanna, you want some? I didn't want to tell him I'd never had any, but um, I said, no thanks. Well, then he started to get really strange. He said, why are you here? I mean, it was just, and, The other thing I should tell you is there was no doorknob on the front door. It was loose. So he said, Oh, I'm going to go out walking again. He left and he took the doorknob. (laughs) And I thought, I am locked in this place. (laughs) I got Mm -hmm. three hours sleep. Anyway, the next day it was a great hearing. um, And I was far better prepared having spent that night.
1: Did any of your colleagues (laughs) say anything to you? I mean, did anybody else? do this? Tell, you didn't tell them. You just. I didn't,
0: tell, I didn't tell the press. I didn't, you
1: know. And you just felt like you needed to understand this place to
0: be. Yeah. Well, you know places. what? Where they had me is they had me in the most expensive hotel in Chicago. Right. And the reason is, and this is, you know, what some don't understand, these hotels give really good government rates. So they might be uh, less than, uh, you know, Motel 6. And so at any anyway, rate, I was, I was staying at a, so the next night I stayed at the nice hotel. I felt I could get away
1: with it. mm Amazing story. So you were, you know, during your tenure in Congress, you were considered a maverick in the GOP. For example, you're one of only five Republicans who voted against President Clinton's impeachment. What well, there, was it were like- four,
0: there were four who voted against uh, only, uh, four voted against all of them and one voted against part of it. So you're right. Ah, five. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. But You're what- right
0: in your statistics. I shouldn't try to keep correcting you.
1: <laughs> Did a little research. Um, but I want to understand what it was like taking stands that were unpopular with your own party and kind of how do you sustain yourself through the challenges of acting on principles even when it's politically difficult with your own party?
0: You're always in the battle. So you're you're always relevant. Now, there's a cost. I was next in line to be chairman of the Government Oversight Committee, the Government Reform Committee. Um, Tom Davis, who was way back, ended up being the chairman, but he had also been the, the the party owed him because he had been head of the Congressional Campaign Committee. So he, he, they had to give him something. And I was told, because of campaign finance reform, you know, it was McCain-Feingold and chase in the Senate shays me in the House. And I'll tell you, parenthetically, McCain told me after it passed that if the court ruled it unconstitutional, it would be shays me, and if they ruled it the constitutional, it would be McCain-Feingold. Unfortunately, it became mccain yep. Um But um, uh, they told me that, Chris, there's no way that we can't, can, the majority of Republicans are against campaign finance reform. You're going against the majority, not right? just against the leadership. And, and there would have to be a price to pay. And I understood. I understood there'd be a price to pay. To the credit, because I understood, to the credit of the leadership they made me vice chairman of the committee. They allowed me to stay on as chairman of the Government Oversights National Security Committee, even though my term had ended. Uh, and they let me, uh, I was on four committees. I mean, they, they tried to treat me well in every way they could without it looking like I had been rewarded for going against the party. And um, so the, the big sadness for me was when I lost the election in '08. I was then going to become Chairman of the Government Oversight Committee, and uh I would have done what Kennedy did. I would have hired the best and the brightest, and I would have um hired less, so I could have paid them more.
1: Mm. My sense when I hear you talk is th- th- there was a real inner clarity for you around this. This was not you were not writing pluses and deltas, and should I do this or should I, it was just you kind of knew what you stood for. And even if there were serious political consequences, you were not going to detach from that. Am, am I kind of understanding your experience through this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But but understand I, I was in sync with my district, you know, and I got, I mean, so, I mean, I, it wasn't like I was a maverick against my own district. I my district was a swing district and a lot of thoughtful people who wanted me to be an American before I was the Republican. And that's, that's not happening today um, and and I always knew I could lose the election uh, and I ultimately did I won in oh six and I was one of the top, top six targets I was again one of the top six targets in oh eight and lost uh, when uh, and I have to tell you it it, it was a disappointment and then it's still a disappointment. I felt my mission in life was to do exactly what I was doing and so it May I tell you one disappointment I had that I was going to do with chairman? Please. I had a hearing. I had great hearings, and I learned something in my my freshman year. Uh, my freshman year, I was in government oversight committee, and the chairman was the uh, Texas tough guy, wonderful partisan, but but strong as hell, and he cared about his committee. And here is this new Republican freshman, and I was asking questions to witness and the witness wasn't being responsive. He hit the gavel and he said to the witness, Congressman Chase has as much time as he needs for you to show him the respect to answer the question that he's asked you. And then of course he did. The five minute rule is a joke. Any witness can can outlast the five minutes. So I had in my subcommittee a 10 minute rule. And if, if a Democrat was asking a question and a Republican witness or whomever was not being responsive I just I just said, this. the gentleman has as much time as he needs. Then I had something else in my hearings. I had the government officials would come and go, and I let them know that if they came, they stayed, because they needed to hear everyone else. Or they would come in the beginning, and they'd be the last to testify. And then on occasion, I had their challenger sit next to them, so they weren't just the only one. So you may remember a story of a young woman who was kicked out of, um, the Air Force Academy because she had complained that she was being uh, um, abused by a upperclassman who was having sex uh, and she admitted she had had sex with him but didn't want it she did, and he didn't give that, give in and so they said excuse me young lady you, officer, could I, you had sex with this person and she admitted and she said you're out she had to pay for her years of school because you know if you kicked out of the academy you pay the guy who did it was involved was not kicked out, and finally the press got a hold of it and they kicked him out. Well, now she's at a person she's at some school, big school, uh, and I decided to have a hearing. So she comes and testifies, and I have I asked the commandant of the Air Force Academy to come. He didn't come. He pleaded with me. He said, "My deputy is a woman. Could she come?" I said, "Okay." So at any rate, the deputy comes, and this young lady comes, and they both are testifying. And the deputy says, you know, sir, we know we made a terrible mistake. And I said, well, did you ever apologize to this young lady, or to the woman? you know?" And she turns around immediately to look at, you know, the the 10 brass that all are got, and all of them are like, you know, oh, she says, sir, evidently we haven't. So I said, well, now's your chance. Turn off the mics and apologize. So after the hearing, this is what I want to tell you. Now, this is an 08. I say, if I'm elected, I will either be the chairman, I can hire 80 people, or the minority uh, uh, in, in the committee leader, and I can hire 40, and you're going to be one of them. And you're going to be assigned to look at sexual harassment in the military, and you can start with the academies. And if you go to the academy and the, the commandant and you want to meet with all the uh, group of women, you, you would know what to ask for if you there and privately and you, you get any um, reluctant, you let me know. And I will call them up and say, sir, I'm going to come myself if he doesn't get it. And if I came, obviously they would have. Yeah. And so, and I just relished the thought of that. And I lost the election. I didn't get to do it. But that's, you know, some of the things I would have just relished it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you left office in two thousand nine.
0: I was defeated. Let's, let's defeated. Say.
1: Defeated. All, All right. right. So uh, it's twenty twenty. When you look at the current state of our national politics, how do you understand I, what's going on?
0: I, I weep. You I weep. I, I, mean, I. Well, when I was first elected, um, you it, you were you were patted on the back if you worked with the other side. You were you were. Now, um, if you worked with the other side to the extent that you were way off your own party, you might you'd be criticized, but they expected you to look for common ground. And I, re- I remember um, I ran for the Senate in, in 2012 and, and didn't get the nomination. And I remember talking, so that's just, you know, four years later. Um, I remember talking with, with, the, with the group that, you know, just definitely wanted to protect the Constitution. Don't compromise. I'm thinking, don't compromise, protect. What do you mean don't compromise? How is not compromise? Don't compromise, don't be true to the Constitution. I said to this person and many, uh, during the course of the debate, the campaign, I said it was created because there was no compromise. We had the Articles of Confederation and 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 we had people not working with each other. It was designed to create compromise, and it was a, a instrument. that was a complete compromise. So let me start off. The Constitution was a complete compromise designed to create compromise. And I said, "And you want me to not compromise? No, I want to respect the Constitution." So what do I see now? If if a Republican gets in the car with a Democrat. He thinks he's being bipartisan. No, in those days, uh, let me just tell you a story related to this. In, in my last term, before I was defeated, there was someone I worked with very closely, a Democrat, and I get a call from her as I'm about to come in the chamber. And I just came in the chamber, put the phone close to my head, and she's on the front row with her hand like this talking to me. She said, don't sit next to me. You're one of our targeted uh, members. You are a targeted member. And if I, I'm told I'm not supposed to do anything with you, co-sponsor bills, speak well of you, do anything with you. And if you sit next to me, they're going to want to know everything we talked about. We'll talk later. But from that point on, she never did anything with me. Nancy Pelosi, that same week, I kid you not. Now this is the year they were in, Power. I won the 06 election and people were surprised that I did and this is Nancy's exact words why can't we all work together now that what I don't like about what Nancy did is it was so hypocritical Newt Gingrich would have done the same thing but he would have never claimed why can't we work together he would never he would basically say you know we're going to do it our way I mean the point that I couldn't stand was that she would act like somehow she wanted us to work together when she had me willing to work with her and she was telling people don't work with me because that was the target. No, that's that's the state of affairs. It began with Newt uh, and perfected by Nancy Pelosi. All right, so,
1: Our whole purpose as an organization is to try and bring more servant leaders into politics, folks like you who have served either military, Peace Corps, AmeriCorps. What advice do you have for servant leaders who are looking at the headlines today and wondering if they should get in the arena?
0: Well, You mentioned AmeriCorps. I wanted to say that was one of my successes. The the Clinton administration reached out to me, and I was being a former Peace Corps volunteer, and when we passed AmeriCorps, I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. And the people who Clinton had working on that were some of the best and the brightest and no politics to them. They just want to get the job done. Um, So uh, your question now that I didn't answer is? Uh,
1: Advice for servant leaders. A
0: few years behind you. Um, They're looking at the headlines. Love love, love the opportunity. Uh, Know it's purposeful. Um, Know that uh, besides being purposeful, uh, you will be the better person for it throughout your life. Know that you will constantly draw on it throughout your life. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and it's not a postponement of your so-called career, because by the way, you'll have more than one career. It, it's an opportunity to serve. Uh, and it's an opportunity to bring out the best and the brightest in us. Fantastic. That's great.
1: Well, Congressman Shays, thank you for sharing your stories. You have had a fascinating life and uh, have lived with such integrity and made some uh, unique decisions. And it's just fascinating to hear your um, adventures through service and politics. So thank you so much for making time to be with us.
0: Thank you for letting me have these memories and letting me go on and on and on. I, I love the memories. Fantastic.
1: Great to have you with us. This has been the New Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Max Cloud. Thanks for listening and I hope you join us for our next episode when we'll meet another servant leader who has chosen to step up and serve through politics. If you want to learn more about New Politics and the candidates that we support, please check us out online at www.newpolitics.org. And I'll leave you with this question. How do you feel called to serve at this critical moment for our nation? Thanks for joining and I hope to see you back next time.